Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Today's story is about a woman's heartbreaking, beautiful journey. At first blush, it's hard to see how someone could reframe a non-operable brain tumor wrapped around the brainstem, the paralysis of the right side of her face, and ongoing headaches, pain, and pressure as holding any beauty in life. But today we'll find out how Jody Orgill Brown does just that. Stay tuned for our discussion. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Jody Orgale Brown is a certified nonprofit consultant, as well as a professional speaker, a best-selling author, and a brain tumor survivor. Jody's professional clients and partners include the U.S. Department of Defense, the Christopher Reeve Foundation, Intermountain Healthcare, the Weber State Goddard School of Business, the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome, America First Credit Union, United Way, Salt Lake, and Northern Utah chapters, and Doris Duke Charitable Foundation. She's also worked with the Nova Principles Foundation and One Refugee. Her memoir, The Sun Still Shines, won the 2016 Gold Quill and is an Amazon bestseller. Her second book, Rise Above Depression, was released last year, November, and hit the number one spot on Amazon in February of this year. Jody has lived in the Middle East and on both U.S. coasts, but believes home is where you make it. She's the wife of Tolan Brown, and they are parents to four amazing children. Chapter One, Crossing the Threshold. Summer of 2008 through winter of 2009. I am a wimp. My eyes focused on the path before me, and as I tried to steady my feet from their faltering course, Brittany, my friend, confidant, and jogging partner glided over the road. The defeated monologue in my head resigned me again to failure. I hated the notion that anyone can run. I searched for the running zen my friend spoke of, but we never met. So I ran for less consequential reasons, to exercise and to be with friends. All summer at 6 a.m., our feet drummed the sidewalks before the blistering sun rose, and while the grass still smelled of fresh dew, the corner street light provided the perfect spot for us to meet, greet, and stretch. It was there at our starting point that I secretly began counting down the minutes until each run ended. During every jog, my head pounded and the world spun around me. I couldn't fathom why otherwise sane people enjoyed the internal tornadoes brought about by the supposedly benign sport of running. It didn't occur to me that maybe the difference or that maybe the experience differed for others. Excuses for not running during our run became part of my repertoire. One balmy September morning, we said our goodbyes, and as usual, I walked the remaining blocks home and then stumbled up the stairs into my house. I nearly collided with my husband, Tolan, on his way out the door. How was your run? I've been going three times a week for five months, and I still hate it. My breathing hadn't slowed. My words came out choppy. Honestly, I feel terrible when I run. It makes me dizzy and lightheaded. 
The day slowed, lengthened by the absence of warmth and the sun's retreating light. Every dizzy spell drained the normalcy from my life. Something built within me, like a rising thermometer indicating a fever. I knelt on my bedroom floor before Christmas, wrapping Thomas the Tank engine trains for my toddler, Davin. The room started spiraling around me, the motion so strong I had to lie on the carpet to regain balance. The twirling sensation resumed when I stood. I began to worry in earnest. The incident marked the fifth debilitating spell in only four days. The questions stacked like the boxes I needed to wrap. What caused the dizzy spells? Why were they growing more frequent and intense? Could others tell something was wrong? The holiday came, but the answers didn't arrive in colorfully decorated packages topped with bows. In January, I heard a neighbor describe the dizzy spells she had experienced from an inner ear infection. I visited my doctor and nudged him for the same verdict. An inner ear infection is the most likely scenario for a young and otherwise healthy person like yourself, he said. Relieved to receive the answer I wanted, I tried to hunker down for a long winter's nap. Helen encouraged me to take it easy. So cereal replaced a few homemade dinners, and I rested when my toddler did. I consolidated big kid homework time and arranged carpools for soccer and piano. At work, I hid in my office and sat alone at lunch rather than networking. My career as a professional nonprofit fundraiser normally filled me with intrinsic satisfaction. I liked knowing I was helping people in need. But burning headaches cut my conversation short, and stacks of paperwork eclipsed my joy of giving to others. I sat quietly through long meetings and then popped ibuprofen pills before I hurried to get the kids. Still, the headaches intensified. I scheduled another face-to-face -face with the doctor in February. You are young and otherwise healthy, he stated again. The headaches are likely tension migraines from stress. I concurred with the diagnosis. By the end of March, my family sang and blew out candles in the shape of the number 33. The normalcy of my simple life further dissipated with the small flames. None of my careful precautions stopped the rooms from spinning. Moving walls forced me to grip the banister for every marathon down the hall. Pressure built in my head until I thought I would topple. The humming of the refrigerator rang constantly in my ear, adding to the disruptions in my routine. But then I realized the sound wasn't coming from the kitchen. For weeks, Tolan called from the office multiple times a day just to check on me. Early in April, he walked into the kitchen after work and stared me in the face. How are you today? I avoided his eyes. Not good. Something is wrong with you, Jody. The strain in his voice made my insides churn. He'd never spoken to me in such an impatient tone. I kept my head down and instinctively picked at my nails. Tolan put his hand under my chin and tilted my face up. It's time we find out what is going on. I don't care that you've been to the doctor twice already. You need to go back again, and this time we're not going to stop until we know. The calendar filled with appointments, tests, and blood draws. Lobbies and cubicle-sized exam rooms it captured my time and held it hostage for hours every week. A week after an appointment with my family physician and another round of tests, the phone rang and the caller ID read, Herefordshire Clinic. So I quickly picked up. Ms. Brown, this is Jill from Dr. Obayashi's office. I wanted to let you know the results of your blood test came back normal. Everything looks good. As much as I wanted to believe the news, I knew I couldn't. Everything is not good, Jill. Something is wrong. I need you to ask the doctor what we do next. 
Her pause told me that she understood my insistence. Okay, hold one minute, please. Jill returned to the line. Mrs. Brown, Dr. Obayashi said the next step is an MRI of your brain. We called McKay Hospital. You are on the schedule for April 27th. They will call with the details before your appointment. Good. I exhaled. Thank you. The phone clicked off. I attempted to retreat to my room, but I made it only a few feet before vertigo forced me to grab the railing collapsing onto the floor. I crawled back into the office and called the hospital. McKay Imaging, this is Anne. Anne, my name is Jody Brown. I have an appointment in a couple of weeks for an MRI of my brain, but the words stumbled like steps. I'm not good. I can't wait that long. All sounds stopped. When Anne spoke again, she whispered as though telling me a secret. If you can be here at 6.30 tomorrow morning, I can have the tech work you in before normally scheduled patients. I'll be there. April 10th, 2009. The monstrous machine swallowed my body. The clanking and erratic vibrations rattled me to the core. Why did they even bother with the radio? That's a marketing tactic if I ever saw one. Far from comforting me with music, the bulky headphones barely muffled the clattering of the MRI equipment. Trying to occupy my mind during the 25-minute test was akin to waiting in line for the restroom. No matter what else I tried to think about, only one thing captured my thoughts. When Kim, the radiology tech, finally unhooked the restraint that imprisoned my head, I thanked her for the chance to spend the morning in a claustrophobic box. She grinned. Your doctor will call in a few days. Her parting words proved false. Kim tracked me down in the locker room a few minutes later. Oh good, you're still here, she blurted. Since you are the first patient of the day, the radiologist saw your images live, and he thinks he sees a little something. Would you be able to stay for another scan so he can get a better look? I stood motionless. Kim hesitated and then gestured for me to follow her into a glass-encased office at the back of the room. Normally, I don't do this, but I think you'll understand if you see for yourself, she said as she pulled up the digital images. She pointed to one specific location. Here is what he is looking at, a little spot outside the right auditory canal. I had never seen a brain scan before. Strange shapes and lines littered the fuzzy image that meant nothing to me. Unsure what to look for, I stared at the monitor. But then it came into focus. Clearly, something was there. Take two. After she injected dye into my veins, the exam table slid back into the imaging tunnel. A strange calm and unexpected relief flooded me. A spot on my brain. It made sense. I knew something was wrong. The feeling had built for months. The news reassured me that I wasn't crazy. Perhaps it meant a fix to the problem so I could return to normal life. Half an hour later, the jackhammering and muffled music stopped. Machine spat me out of its gut. The scene replayed as it had earlier. Kim released the restraints and pulled me to a sitting position. And then she crouched until we were eye level. There is definitely something there. Go home and call your doctor immediately. Her tone chased away the relief and determination I'd experienced only moments before. We stared at each other, no longer strangers. Her eyes watered as I stood and she drew me into a hug. Good luck to you. She spoke only those four words, but said so much more. I gathered my purse and jacket and turned toward the exit. Looking back, I uttered, thanks. And then I stepped into the blinding light of the hospital.
Jody, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Let's start out with um, you picking up the story from where that left off. So that was an excerpt from The Sun Still Shines, her personal story of how a brain tumor helped her to see the light. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So we got a glimpse of who you were nine years before. And when you got this brain tumor diagnosis, tell us the story of the diagnosis and what happened. The initial diagnosis was pretty scary. Uh, when the call came from my doctor, he said that it looked like a brain tumor or a mass between my right auditory canal and the brainstem. And a few days later, when I did go to a neurosurgeon, the first doctor and the first diagnosis followed by the next several all concluded that the brain tumor was inoperable, that there was nothing that anyone could do. So you can imagine as a young wife and mother, that really sent our lives into a bit of a tailspin. Uh, but through what I call a series of miracles, the inoperable diagnosis changed to an operable diagnosis. And we found someone who was willing to operate and try to remove the tumor. What were the series of miracles? Word got out pretty quickly when this happened. And we have a wonderful network of friends who started inquiring and literally my head was being examined around the world as friends sent the MRI images to different doctors and look different locations throughout the world. And my husband had a coworker who came up to him just days after the news got out. And she said, Oh, I've heard about your wife and I'm not trying to intrude on your business, but one of my best friends is a neurosurgeon and he's one of the world's best neurosurgeons. And I called him and you don't have to if you don't want to, but he said, you will see your wife Friday during his lunch break. And just like that, we got an appointment with this neurosurgeon who is an amazing and humble man, which is not something you say lightly in regards to neurosurgeons. And when we went to see him, uh, he within a few minutes was able to take a look at the scans and after a little bit of time and studying he declared that he thought he could do that and he thought he would be able to remove the tumor and so i was in the hands of someone who was willing to try and save my life instead of the previous two dozen doctors who really didn't give me much hope well it looks like it worked here you are um here i am <laughs> journey like? Terrifying. Uh, I guess the good thing is I'm a very optimistic type A go-getter person naturally. And so I went in quite ignorantly blissful, <laughs> which is probably a really good thing because I think if we had known how difficult the journey would be, it would have been much harder to take it on with, with fortitude and with positivity and with optimism. But we didn't know, and that was a good thing. What were the most difficult parts, and what were the most, um, well, the beautiful parts? I think the most difficult parts <clears throat> were the separation from my family and simply the length of time and the number of procedures and complications because I was supposed to go into the hospital for one brain surgery and five days 
in critical care recovering. And instead, I ended up having three brain surgeries, 35 days in and out of neurocritical care. And I ended up getting most of the complications and side effects that were possible from the surgery, including facial paralysis, a spinal fluid leak, an infection in my brain that nearly took my life, loss of hearing, um, pretty much everything short of death. And that was not kind to you. They wanted (laughs) this trial was to wring every little bit out of you, wasn't it? Well, and honestly, I just didn't have a clue going in. Yes, I signed my name to the paper saying I knew that these things were a possibility, but I didn't really think that they would happen to me. Uh, So I thought that we were prepared for what was to come, uh, but there's no way I could have known and there's no way I could have prepared. And so we also didn't adequately prepare our family. I had prepared a, a calendar for six days of being gone and had rides and meals and, you know, homework help arranged for my kids for a few days uh, and a few days turned into a few weeks turned into longer. And that was really, really tough both on me as well as on my young family. So how long were you in these surgeries? In the surgeries? Well, how long were you in this process before you were to a, a space of stability? Oh, stability is a, that's a tough one because I was, in and out of the neurocritical care and with the three brain surgeries, those took place over the 35 days that I was in the hospital. Uh, but I still was not very stable when I left the hospital. By the time I left the hospital, the immediate threat of the brain tumor was gone because they were able to remove about 80% of the tumor. And when they tested it, it was not uh, cancerous. They never did find out what it was, and so there is nothing in recorded history that matches what it is. So they still don't know exactly what that means for the future, but for the time being, it meant that we were at least out of danger from that perspective. However, the spinal fluid leak created another set of challenges, and then the facial paralysis and the hearing loss created another set. And so by the time I got out of the hospital, Really, the only thing that had been truly resolved was the removal of the brain tumor. And then they had finally sealed the spinal fluid leak. So I at least didn't have spinal fluid leaking out of my nose anymore. (laughs) So from your book, the dizziness, the headaches, all of that, that you were going in to get resolved with the removal of the brain tumor, did those get resolved also? Or what are you still dealing with now? That's a good question because a lot of people assume that the removal of the tumor meant a removal of the symptoms, which would make sense. And that's what we had hoped for. And that's what the doctors had hoped for. But they did warn me going in that there was about a 30% chance that the damage to the nerves was already done and that these symptoms could continue. Again, being positive and optimistic, I never believed that that would be the case, but it has been the case. And nine years later, I still have debilitating migraines Um, And I'm very, and my eustachian tube inside my inner ear was sealed to seal the spinal fluid leak so I can no longer pressurize. I can't pop my ears. And so every time a storm comes in or out or I go up or down um, in altitude, that triggers major migraines. So I, I probably have a headache, I would say 28 days of the week, and I probably have migraine level headaches anywhere between 15 and 23 days of the month. How do you survive that? That's horrible, consistent pain. It is. (laughs) And for a while, I wasn't surviving very well. Um, And I really did try 
every medication that they suggested. And honestly, some of the medications had as big of side effects as the headaches themselves. And in some cases worse, there were some medications that made me um, suicidal. And I, I just decided that maybe these weren't the way to go and I needed to find a different way to manage. So I've really just come to a point where I try very hard to manage on my own. Uh, I do some meditating. I rest when I need to. My kids are very good at knowing when mom has a headache, here's the things that she needs. And they'll run and get my ice packs and I have special pillows and I close the doors and turn off the lights and, and hide away. Um, but I've also learned to become functional so that I can still carry on at least with some basic things uh, while I'm suffering from the migraines. And obviously I'm not going to do anything that's going to put anyone else in harm's way. If I'm not good enough to drive, I won't drive. I have a great support system in my neighborhood and I have some fabulous people who will come to my rescue any day that I need them. <laughs> How do you find the inner strength? What is it inside of you that helps you deal with that kind of consistent pain, knowing that there's a really good chance that's not ever going to end. That's your existence. How, what, what buoys you through that? That's a good question. And some days there's an easier answer than others. I think a lot of the time it comes down to two key things. One of those being my faith in God and the second being my family. And I think faith in God makes me feel like there is a greater purpose to this, that this is not about a brain tumor or about migraines but perhaps it's more about opportunities like this, having the chance to reach out and help other people and give other people strength and hope and courage when they're fighting tough things because I get tough things and I know how hard it can be, but I also truly believe that there's purpose for it and that when we help each other and reach out to each other, that that's the best way to, to tackle these things. Not alone, not just hiding in your bedroom, but when you reach out and help someone else through the, their difficult times. And then with my family, for a long time after I got out of the hospital, I really was not very functional at all. And I came to a point where I thought, well, what good am I if I can't do all of the things that I used to be able to do for myself and for my family and for my community? And... I would watch other people come and clean my house while I was laying on the bed or laying on the couch. And I really, really struggled with that. But it was my kids who ultimately came to the rescue and saved that for me because they came and buoyed me up and gathered around me and sat next to me on the bed so we could watch Star Wars or we could, you know, do activities together. And they brought me food even though I could no longer fix it and bring it for them. And they really were the ones who showed me that I was enough just as I was. Even if I couldn't do the things I had been able to do before, I was still their mom and I was still the same person inside. And that was something I was really questioning at that point in time. So it was my family who came to my rescue and, and saved me. Our support systems, our families, the people around us that pitch in when we need them seem to be the consistent thing through all stories that really help us to get through from one place to another. I believe that. And I think I've always tried to be that kind of support for other people. But until I was on the receiving end, I don't know that I really understood the importance of that. And it helped me see 
how important that support is, as well as maybe how inadequate some of my own efforts had been in the past in trying to help people. Because when someone was going through something, I may have taken my small steps or done a little thing to reach out. But being on the receiving end, I realized, wow, there, there was a lot that we needed. And some people reached out in a big way that truly helped us get through some of the most difficult times. But anyone who reached out in any way did something to buoy and lift our spirits and to take some of that stress and pressure off of us during uh, a very strenuous time in our lives. So you call this a heartbreaking, beautiful journey. And you just said that, you know, one of the purposes and meanings you find behind it is that of being able to share so that your story can help to support and give others hope. Is that why you wrote your book, The Sun Still Shines? It is. And I had a feeling I was supposed to do something at the time. I didn't know what it was. Um, But while I was still in the hospital, I had a very clear and distinct thought and impression that came to me once I was getting to the point where I realized I was going to leave the hospital and that I was going to be okay. And it took many, many weeks to even get to that point. And once I got there, I did have this realization that this wasn't about me and it wasn't about the brain tumor. It was really about helping others and finding some way to make this into a good thing. And I decided right then and there that I would do whatever it took to do that. At the time, I wasn't sure exactly what that would look like. What it has turned into was, well, actually two books and speaking, podcasts, blogs, interviews, a lot of personal visiting with other people as well. As much as I do some of the things on a larger scale that reach bigger audiences, I also do a lot of one-on-one and people reach out and say, hey, I have a friend who was just diagnosed or someone who is preparing for surgery. Would you reach out and talk to them? Will you, will you just answer some of their questions or uh, give them some hope? And I really love to do that too, because I know what a scary place it is to be there and feel like no one around you knows what you're feeling. So to be someone who can relate a little bit when someone's going through a hard time um, also brings purpose to my journey. Are you able to keep working professionally or is that something you've chosen to step away from? I am still working professionally. I worked part-time for a couple of years after returning to work from my brain surgeries. But what I did do was take a couple of years off. I struggled really with staying on top of everything with my health and with going to my therapies and with managing. So I took a few years where I just stayed home with my family. And then that was the time when I wrote my first book also. Um, And then afterwards, now that all my kids are in school during the day, I am working and I work as a nonprofit consultant. Is it harder with everything that you have to go through? I mean, what's your everyday life like now as compared to what it was nine years ago? Wow, that's a good question. I don't think it's as different now as maybe it was a few years ago. Now I have worked myself back into a schedule where I, you know, I get up and actually my kids often get up before I do. Um, One of the things with recovering brain injury is that you need an incredible amount of sleep. 
that means like nine to 11 hours a night, which is more than my kids get, which means I usually go to bed before them and I get up after them. And for a while, I held quite a bit of guilt about that, about the fact that I wasn't the dutiful mom getting their kids up, welcoming them with a, a hug and a kiss first thing in the morning and sending them off to school with their little lunch bags packed. Um, it was hard for me to realize that I, I couldn't fulfill that role. But as time has gone on, I realize I also have these incredibly independent, self-motivated kids who can get up and do all of these things and come in and check on me before they walk out the door. So that's usually how my morning starts is with a hello and goodbye from my cute kids as they tell me goodbye before they go to school. And from that point on, my mornings, I really try to keep some structure and schedule, uh, do some exercising, some meditating, some personal time. And then I get to work and I work with my clients. And sometimes I'm writing, sometimes it means I'm uh, researching, sometimes it means I'm on conference calls or video conferences, sometimes I travel physically to go meet with my clients. Um, but it's it's at least more structured now, which I think I needed. I think I needed the structure in order to feel more normal. So on times where I don't have structure, I actually build it into my schedule. So if I don't have something consistently in the mornings, I would build in something. I would build in volunteering at the school. So I had a reason to get up and to be ready uh, because it was far too easy to not be good when I was not good. <laughs> so I feel the pain and I see the heart, you know, the heartbreak part of the story, of course, so much loss of the normalcy of being able to function at a, you know, at a healthy space, um, the paralysis of your faith, the, um, the changing, you know, the, just the complete change of your life. I mean, I can only imagine the difficulty um, but also the, the strengthening. And like you say, I love your reframing about what, how it changes life for your kids in a good way. Right. And, and the framing of focusing on the, the, um, relationships with family and friends through the experience. So find, finding the potential meaning and, um, growth out of the spaces. Would you say that that's the beautiful part of the journey? So you call it the heartbreaking, beautiful journey. What, what is that beautiful part to you? Absolutely. That's the beautiful part. Every relationship that I have means more to me now than it did before. My relationship with my neighbors means more. Yes, we were neighbors and we were friends and we were acquaintances. Now we are joined at the heart and they are part of my forever friendships and support systems. And now I reach out and see how they're doing as much as they reach out and see how I'm doing. And I think with my family as well, one of the things that uh, we haven't talked about, but that I talk about in my book is the fact that my mother moved into our home to take care of my family while I was in the hospital. And she ended up staying, living at my house for four months. And my father flew into town and stayed next to my bedside when I was in the hospital for 28 days. Um, and how can you not 
grow closer and have more appreciation and realize what a beautiful experience that is. That's more time than I had been able to spend with my parents since I lived in their house, you know, as a child growing up. And I'm so grateful for that and so grateful for how much that strengthened our relationships and for the example it was for me to realize parenthood doesn't just end when your kids walk out the door. I was 33 years old. Now I'm 42 and my parents still reach out and check on me and help me uh, on a regular basis. And the last several surgeries that I've had, so since my brain tumor surgeries, we have gone through probably, I think it's nine or 10 additional surgeries for to address the complications and side effects of the surgery, including the fact that I could not blink my eye, which meant uh, I also couldn't see and I was my eye was getting damaged. So I've had probably six procedures done in order to help me be able to protect my eye and to preserve my sight. And I've had additional procedures uh, on my ear to help as well as on my face to be able to help me so that I can chew and speak and have some symmetry in my face. And most of these have taken place in other states with specialists who are few and far between. And man, my family really, again, came to the rescue and stepped up at every opportunity uh, where I was in crisis and flying out of town to California to go have emergency surgery. Just time and time and time again, they stepped in and took over and did what needed to be done. And uh, I can't explain in words how that buoys the soul. Beautiful indeed. Tell me, um, when others come to you seeking advice about how to make it through these hard spaces, what, what advice, what, what, what's your go-to as far as, and for the listeners who are going through hard things, you know, my first take is if I'm having a bad day or feeling frustrated about something, I could look at your story and say, well, at least I'm not going through that, you know? Um, you know and it's funny because people have said that to me numerous times, but I also think the reality is number one, it's not a competition. And what you or any listener may be going through at any given time may be as difficult for them as what I was going through at that time in my life. And so when someone comes and says, oh, well, I was only in the hospital for two weeks, or my son only had this level of cancer, I think there's no such thing as only. Our struggles are ours, and they are challenging, uh, regardless of what someone else's struggles look like. And so there's always going to be someone who's got it worse. (laughs) And maybe that's a little bit comforting, just knowing that, you know, it could be worse. It could be more difficult. And that helps us to keep perspective and helps us to keep hopeful. Um, But I think my my real go-to advice, a couple of things. Number one, it's be gentle with yourself and take the advice that you would give someone else. Because so often people would tell me to take care of myself, you know, to be patient with myself. And I didn't want to be patient. I wanted to be better. I wanted to go back to normal. Um, I wanted life to just jump back to the way that it had been. And <laughs> maybe I'm a slow and stubborn learner that it's taken me so many years and so many experiences to get to the point 
where I give myself time. And when I'm not feeling well, I will acknowledge. And if I'm in a bad place, I will step away and close the door and close my eyes and take something to ease the pain. And that's not something I ever wanted to do. It's not something I ever wanted to admit. Um, And now I realize we have to take that time for ourselves, just like putting on your oxygen mask before, you know, putting on the oxygen mask of the person next to you. You have to have that time, give yourself that TLC uh, and really just be patient because no matter what it is that you're going through, just like when you take on a project and you think, Oh, I'm going to make a picture frame and it's going to take me three hours. And it takes triple the amount of time that we think it's going to, I think recovery and mentally and emotionally and physically dealing with crises and with struggles is the same way. We think it should be as easy to get out of it as it was to get into it. And that doesn't ever seem to be the case. I think that's great advice because I've noticed with people in all different forms of struggle. So my son recently came home from an LDS mission and I shared this on an earlier episode, but he, he's very, um, he's got a lot of forward propulsion in his life and he, he wants to push through everything and make things happen. And, and he was really concerned about coming home because he wanted to stay there. He wanted to stay in a mission space where he could feel close to the spirit and where he was testifying of Christ. And that was something that was really, really important to him. And he didn't want to be back in normal everyday life. And so I knew that was his biggest struggle. But one morning he said, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do some mental work and allow this to be what it is for three days, but by Monday I should be better. And I thought, (laughs) no, it's okay. You You get to feel those emotions and you get to have, you know, feel the loss or go, go through that process. And maybe it takes months, you know, you have to give yourself time to process the things that you're going through and that's okay. Sometimes it's the same with a breakup, right? Like you just got your heart broken. You're like, I have got to bounce back. I cannot be sitting here eating ice cream and reading novels in order to escape where I'm at. I've got, you know, I've I've got to get back to work in three days and I I should bounce back now. And it's not, I think it's a cruel thing to do to ourselves because we have to allow for spaces of healing and for spaces of being and for spaces of feeling. I think that you are right on. I also think that your son is wise by giving himself a deadline. Well, his was remarkably short, so he probably will need or need it a little bit longer than that. There is something to be said for uh, having a date by which you want to be able to function again or be out of a certain, you know, negative cycle because you do need to let yourself process everything and give yourself time. But some people get in that time and it ends up cycling down into depression and they can find themselves in a downward spiral. And so if you do have a date or a deadline or something you're looking forward to, knowing that by this point in time, I need to be okay, that can actually sometimes be a positive thing. Uh, I just think it needs to be a balance. If you, if you give yourself only 24 hours or only three days and you're dealing with something huge, uh, then you're actually going to disappoint yourself and perhaps fall further because you, you didn't hit your goal. So you have to be realistic with yourself. Um, but I think it is good to sometimes give yourself something to look forward to so that you know that there will be an end to this, that, you know, maybe I feel crummy now, but in two weeks 
I'm going to be good so that I can go out to lunch with my girlfriend and, and give yourself something to reach for. Well, and maybe at that two week point, you would check in with yourself and be like, have I made, have I made progress of, you know, or do I need more healing time? Because I don't think Excellent this idea. Demand I healing. I love that because that's what it amounts to, because you can't say what the amount of time is for any one thing or, or any particular experience, but you can check in and you can make sure you're okay and can make sure that you're going in a positive direction and instead of a negative direction. And as long as you're getting better and dealing with things better, uh, then, you know, continue to give yourself the time you need. If you start to slip down into a spiral, then maybe reevaluate and see if you need to get someone else involved uh, so that it doesn't become, um, too negative or too downward. Jody, thanks for being on the podcast today. I appreciate your good heart and willingness to share your story and helping others get through their tough times. Do you have any parting advice? or thoughts that you want to share about your journey? I believe one of the things that I learned, and maybe this took me longer to learn than some of the other lessons, which came more quickly, but one of the things that has stuck out to me is that we each need to help be problem solvers. We need to take things on, and that means taking on things ourselves to advocate for ourselves and to help provide the answers and solutions for our own lives, as well as once we've been able to help with those things to the larger world as well. Uh, it, it was a long time in the hospital before I finally realized the doctors did not know what was going on on inside of my body as well as I did. And even though I wasn't a brain surgeon, I had critical information and they needed to listen to me. And so the additional piece that I would say is listen to yourself, advocate for yourself. And then once you've advocated for yourself, um, advocate for others. And that was really how I came to write my second book, uh, Rise Above Depression, because I realized there are so many people who, who were struggling. And though I'm sure I didn't have anything near what some other people had struggled with, I realized I could still be part of the solution. And um, felt very much compelled to, to take that on and to at least address it from a perspective of, of people who suffer. And that's probably something I wouldn't have, have done years ago. Uh, and now I see an issue and I think, well, there's no reason I can't help be part of the solution. So there you go. <laughs> that's thank my final thoughts, I guess. Yes. Thank you. And just for the listeners, Jody has, um, given us donated a copy of rise above depression for one of the listeners so if you are interested in getting a copy of that we're going to do a drawing so the way that you can get your name entered for that is on the website loveyourstorypodcast.com her episode will be up there and there's a space for comments in in the comment box just right below her episode for tuning in for my discussion with Jody today. If you'd like to get in touch with her, her contact information will be available in the show notes on loveyourstorypodcast.com. You can also access and share all the other 100 plus episodes that we now have up there. We've had over 100 podcast episodes, all of them as neat and interesting as Jody's story. 
If you like the show, we would love, love, love it if you would leave us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening. Those reviews, having fresh reviews up there is really important to us. And you can always join us on Facebook. We have a closed group, Love Your Story Podcast Groupies, and the regular open Love Your Story Podcast page for inspirational quotes. And when the new podcast episodes come up, they pop up there. We'd love to have you on all of those spaces. Have a great week out there creating your best life stories on purpose. And don't forget to find the beauty in the hard spaces. Mm-hmm.